So it's tax week at the bird. Sure um, is. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I'll be honest, is my least favorite week of the year every year. Um, not because our taxes are, like, particularly complicated or anything, you know? like We have I mean, a wonderful Yeah, we've got a good like accountant. accountant. We great. take care of our stuff. Obviously, like, a podcast isn't really that complex of a financial enterprise, <laughs> you know? Like, we get the money once a month. We, you know, distribute it to ourselves in whatever way we've decided for the month. You know, it's very it's very simple and easy. All this sorts of stuff. And it just drives me up a wall each time. Um, and The worst part is that, like, I can't help you with it because I would make you even more crazy No, I mean, it's, it. just, it's just a pure catch-22. There's no way out from just feeling insane. I figure, so <laughs> we had our accountant call yesterday. And I would say, so yesterday was Thursday, and I would say by about Tuesday afternoon this week, my brain had just fully melted. Yeah, that's accurate. And so I was like, I don't know, I mean, I spent the whole week just like staring at spreadsheets and figuring these things out, which didn't even need to be figured out because, Laura, we had already figured it out (laughs) because we're actually perfectly on top of our stuff in a perfectly fine way. But I don't, I always feel like... Our checkbooks are balanced. That's what I mean. Like things, I'm always, something about accounting. And I guess this is like what happens when you take two people who have no formal training in anything but reading Word documents and ask them to run a company. Um... (laughs) But um, we asked ourselves to run this yeah, company. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it's we've we're done, which is great. But one of the funny bits that I really enjoyed um, is I'm I'm going through the print run expenses, right? And it's like okay, a little food here, a little this, you know, some podcasting equipment, some website domain fees, all that kind of stuff. And then in one spot, um, there is a fifty dollar charge for an actual bird. Um, <laughs> we bought a loon. <laughs> we sponsored a loon Dear. through the Audubon Society, <laughs> which I had, which I had forgotten about. Um, and so, again, remember that as I'm going through this, my brain has been melted for 48 hours, and I'm like going line by line through bank statements. Like again, for like no reason, I had already sort of like taken stock of all this stuff. But I get to this line, and it's like 50 bucks a loon, and I, I <laughs> like that was. That was the moment, folks, when when I became the Joker. Well, as, they were going to give say. us a stuffed yeah. loon, so we had to do it. <laughs> yeah, we do have. So we do have a stuffed loon. We do theoretically, we have an actual bird out there in the wild. We do. I wish there was like a way to check on it. You Maybe know? we should name it. Yeah, we, we we've never named it. We never named. We were thinking about naming it, but then you know, we sort of hit the chaos period of our lives and I don't think we ever came back to it so maybe we should ask our listeners to help us name the loon that we actually don't own but have sponsored with a charity so somewhere out there in the frigid north there is a bird that is officially being underwritten by print run podcast and if you would like to name that loon (laughs) uh, please send us a suggestion for it Um, the other upshot of this is that I would say at least every two days, perhaps more. Certainly, on average, like more than every two days, um, I get a different like fundraising email letter, like in the mail, from like some different nature society. <laughs> like I don't know what happened, but they like they clearly passed our info around and like, oh, these guys are the marks. Like we figured. <laughs> Like, we figured out that these are the people who are willing to do things like purchase wild animals, you know, and just give us 50 bucks. Because it was and funny. Because and it's, it, yeah. yeah, and you can write it off in your taxes. And so I mean, every day for, like, a different animal or, like, a different society. I have – plus I get a bunch of free stuff now from the Audubon Society. Like, we've got calendars. We've got – Beautiful. Um, all sorts of – I get the magazine now. Oh. Yeah, no, it's it's like I'm a regular uh, bird enthusiast. It's, it's a – um, it's a whole thing. Uh, I get well, more mail from nature preserves than I do from literally any other source, so what's including the... like our agency. Like, <laughs> so what's the coolest animal that you've been asked to like? Yeah. Also sponsor. I mean, we you know so we're in Minnesota, right? So like I got something once about like wolves. You know sure. what I mean? Like it's a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, but then it it is just a lot of birds, and it's well, yeah. you're don't 
don't like don't your family like breed finches? They did. Like for aren't a while. they like yeah, bird was, people? Yeah, they were well, so I was a bird person growing up and I got everybody in my everybody my mother and I sort of bonded over this idea of like having birds together. It was it was very sweet and idyllic. Yeah. Um, but not like a parrot. Like no, no, you're no, talking little, about like little, little birds you, you could, can't touch yeah. and just like watch. Right, right, right. Yeah. Uh finches. And so we did that, which was great. Um, so no, I have a little bit of a history of being a bird person, but uh, I'm not a bird person now, except for the fact that I own a wild animal and we get more bird literature than probably anyone in America at this point, I figure, because we're probably like the only one who's like purchased a bird, like in the last 10 years or something. (laughs) Like, oh man, we got to get them every fundraiser. Do you know what you should do when you, um, finally like switch over your Colorado license Mm. plate to the Minnesota ones? You should get like the fancy, um, wildlife conservation ones. Yeah. I think there's one with a loon on it. Yeah. You can have a loon yeah. license plate. Yeah, that'd be good. On your um, car. That feels important to me on a psychological level. Yeah, I actually don't think it's that much. Yeah. Anyway, the point of all this is that I classified the bird as an office supply. Uh, <laughs> which is a way of saying welcome. To the tax men that are listening, that's not actually true. Yeah, first of all, this is a parody account. Everything we say on this show, um, it, it's all a joke. Nothing is real. Uh, everything's on the. It's actually under charitable expenses. Exa- exactly. Yeah. Um, welcome. Charitable. Yeah. To this episode of Print Run, my name is Eric Kane. It is great to be back with you. Um, with me, as always, is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, Laura. Um, so we are actually going to be talking about something real today, which is exciting to me. We're going to be talking about. Um, I think, I mean, it's got a few different facets to it. The way I would put it is also the way the article we're going to be discussing uses as a subtitle, and that is the art of literary survival. Um, so before we get into yep. what that means and how we kind of, where we kind of came across the term and what it sort of implies about contemporary publishing, um, let's have, I don't know, the basic rundown. Let's talk about the show. We, <laughs> we haven't had a rundown in forever, folks. We're Great. back in the saddle. Uh, so the first thing I would like all of us uh, to acknowledge together, even though we are in different rooms, um, is that Eric had a brownie for breakfast. So that's the kind of energy that we're working with today. So just like be prepared. Um, Second thing is that we are in the next um, few weeks going to be turning our focus very strongly to our Patreon content. If you are a new listener, don't really know about our Patreon, um, we create content specifically to help writers at various stages of their careers. So we always have a query critique show where people send us their queries and we critique them on air. Mm-hmm. Uh, a first page of show, which is the same thing, but with a first page instead of a query. And then we always have like a flexisode that very much um, is dictated by like the emails that we yeah. get to our account because we keep it flexible because we want to make sure we're providing um, lots of different stuff. Right. If you listened last week, you know, um, or if you've been listening for a while, you know that we took a bit of a unfortunate and unforeseen hiatus. So in addition to kind of like catching up on the regular Patreon episodes, we're also going to be doing um, over the next few months, like a kind of open-ended series of much smaller yeah. topics. Yeah. So if you have like something really specific, like something that might be like a tiny bit too big for a taloon it may concern, but like isn't quite, yeah. you know, whatever, right. send it to us and we, maybe we'll do like 20 minutes on right. it. Maybe we'll do 15 minutes on it and we'll, we're will we going to be posting those separately. Um, if you want to send us any suggestions or your queries or your first pages or any requests, email us. We're at printroompodcast at gmail.com. And as always, if you are thinking, wow, I would really like to access all that Patreon content, but I can't afford it, just email us. We'll give you access, no questions asked. Yeah. No, I mean, the the thing about our Patreon is especially all the more so as we get ready to sort of revamp it. Obviously, we haven't had new stuff on it in a few months because we've been away. But um, in our defense, there's a massive, massive database of things there to be accessed, even if you were missing us on new stuff for the last few months. But um, it's geared around what you guys need, right? Like, I mean, the idea is to... Um, you know, the show itself, and we've been very intentional about this, like the main episode of this show, this free one you're listening to now, is entertainment and information and just sort of commentary. 
And then the Patreon is much more geared around specific advice and help and, like, trying to help you make your way through publishing, the literary world, whatever it is you're, like, wondering about. That's where we want to be helpful there. So whatever you need, like, we want to provide that sort of content. So let us know. Email us, tweet at us, any of that kind of stuff. So Absolutely. So so let's get into it, huh? Why don't we get into it? Um, so this week, um, an essay published in a very good magazine uh, called Book Forum, and um, it was a review of a new biography about Philip Roth, um, and the piece itself um, is called The Vying Animal, The Life of Philip Roth and the Art of Literary Survival. Uh, the author is Christian Lorenzen, um, and I really, you know, this piece got passed around a little bit, and I was sort of hesitant to, not, I guess, hesitant in any strong way, but I didn't really feel the priority to click on it just because I'm not the hugest Philip Roth fan. I've read a little bit of him, but... I'm also not a huge biography yeah, fan. Yeah, no, it just yeah. it wasn't necessarily my sort of piece of content, but everyone was raving about this piece, and suddenly, you know, someone on my feed, they put an excerpt up from it, and to my surprise, it was not about Philip Roth, or it was, but it was mostly about contemporary publishing. And so... That got my interest. I opened it up and I read it, and I think we've even posted it on our Twitter feed now. But basically this essay, in talking about the life of Philip Roth, um, it also it did so in terms of the way Roth interacted with publishing and his career, right? Which is to say it's very interested in the way uh, Roth managed his authorial reputation, the way in which he worked his professional context, the way he sort of, as we would say today, the way he managed his brand, right? Yeah. And, I mean, what this essay sort of comes to as a conclusion is that he was kind of a nasty fucker, right? Like, I mean, he was, <laughs> he was incredibly... But he, had, but he had, like, a like incredible control of his oh, brand. Oh, he was, so he was yeah. a very... Yes, he was very tight-fisted over... I mean, he would go after... I mean, he would do all sorts of things to classify as bad behavior, right? Like, he would get mad at critics. He would, you know, be... He was really kind of clicky with the authors he associated with, all this kind of stuff. Like, he did not like getting reviewed negatively. He would write back. He would do things like that. He would... Um, I mean, obviously, like, in his writing itself, you know, there's a lot of... Um, you know, he was someone who didn't necessarily have the best track record writing women, all this kind of stuff. And so he was constantly pushing back against that, too. Like, he was, you know, he was a fighter in that way, but he was sort of a staunch, like, he was someone who paid a lot of attention to the way he was perceived and how that might affect his career, mm. which, you know, it got us thinking. It got me thinking, and it certainly got Lorenz and the essayist here thinking. And so I want to, for the purposes of our discussion, I want to open up with um, what I thought was a particularly interesting passage that relates, I think, to um, what we often kind of focus on in the show. And so here we go. The implied equation between being talented professionals and having souls is a telling expression of current literary attitudes. People's souls are more likely to be found in the ways they betray each other, their modes of love and hate, than on their resumes. Authorial image management now seeps into the writing of fiction itself. The more readers and critics are content to conflate alter egos with authors, the more authors are tempted to idealize their fictional selves. Confessional literature cedes the field to the autofiction of self-flattery. Characters in middle-brown melodramas are fine-tuned to avoid the ruffling of sensitivities. Elsewhere, villains and victims are flattened so that the readers of contemporary gothic narratives can easily tell them apart. And so... What I think is interesting there is there's, there's an idea presented here that I really do, that we're going to unpack here in a minute. Mm -hmm. And that is, like, the relationship between the way an author manages their public persona and what actually ends up in their book, yeah. right? And so, like, what, you know, Lorenzen is sort of saying here, and he goes on to say, you know, a pseudo-political moralizing about these issues has crept into more and more of our criticism and prizes are bestowed on maudlin therapeutic narratives of abuse and recovery. See last year's Booker winner, Shuggy Bain. Roth was rarely maudlin, and however much of his characters indulged in therapy, analysis, as it was called back then, it never worked. And so, like, the idea here is that there is a sort of fusing happening between how writers are showing themselves mm -hmm. to be and how they're kind of engaging as a quote-unquote like, I guess the word we would use is brand, right, on yeah. this show. Like, he's, you know, Lorenzen here uses the word persona. It's a highbrow magazine. We're going to use the word brand. <laughs> um, and 
and how that actually ends up making decisions for the writer in the work itself, right? And the second part of it, and this is another, like, major concern of this essay, is, like, the idea of, like, literary citizenship, right? Like, how to be a good, like, how to behave well and behave in a way that is not only advantageous to your career, but also is, like, healthy for the larger climate at large, right? Like, how to be someone who is helpful to others and, like, a good member of the community and, like, all these sorts of things, which I think this essay would probably argue Roth was not, right? Like, he was someone (laughs) who was very kind of selfish in his own way in these things, but, like, in this essay critiques him for it in in kind of a sharp way. But, like, so it's these two concerns, right? And they're two concerns we talk about all the time on book Twitter, in any sort of contemporary discussion of publishing, like, how does, like, who can write, like, I mean, you see the questions, right? Like, who can write what? How should you behave? Mm -hmm. What does it mean to have an authorial brand? All these things that are very much present-day concerns for anyone kind of working in this field, right? And I, and so here's, here's the really complicating factor for me. This is, like, Philip Roth, as according to the biography and this particular essay, was a writer who was managing his brand, as you can say, before most people were doing that. Right. Right. Like it was it was exceptional the the how tightly he controlled his own image. Yes. Um and the thing about it is like just by like having this conversation and like having the biography is that that makes him exceptional and worthy of talking right now. Yeah. And so I think that like further complicates the idea of like literary citizenship because I think a key part of that is to promote discussion and like connection yeah. and yeah. and reading in that way. Um, so I think that's where like when we talk about literary citizenship, it's it's a little bit different than when we talk about like community citizenship yeah. or something like that. Well so that, um, <laughs> that actually raises an interesting point too, yeah. which is like Literary citizenship, which is something right now that, and this is maybe a spicy take, but at least, you know, I can't speak for the genres I don't pay as close attention to, but at least in, like, litfic and, like, highbrow stuff, like, people behave monstrously, you know what I mean? Like, What, what, do, you, what do you mean? Well, what I mean is, like, people are gossips, and they're clicky, and they're nepotistic, and they're sort of, like... If you know if something happens, like if someone publishes an essay or something mm-hmm. in a magazine that people don't like, I swear I get and send DMs from who knows how many. Like it's just so, it's so catty. It's yeah. <laughs> and like it's and it's in a way where it's like everyone is suspicious of each other. No one thinks anyone's like success is super valid. Like. And obviously, like, I'm exaggerating a little bit. There's lots of, you know, good people doing good work and stuff. But, like, just on the whole, like, these are these are qualities and or at least threads in the climate that anyone working in these fields can certainly recognize. And it's just, like, as you're saying, so I, I guess the reason I bring it up is because, like, it does mean that sometimes, like, being someone who's prominent in and successful and we should talk for a second about what success means yeah. in the context of what Roth was going for here but like that does not always equate to being a good member of a community you know <laughs> yeah so to the success i think yes. like i am i'm a very big proponent like as an agent you kind of have to be of like everybody has their different definition of success yes. right and i think in the type of success that we're talking about here and that Philip Roth was going for, and that you can use your image to really control that success. Uh-huh. Um, we're talking about like power, access, and opportunity, right? So breaking that down, um, if we go back to like the bad behaviors, yeah. right? If we go back to like he would get really mad at um, places that reviewed him negatively, yeah. and. I think the like the truth is is that like if you get big enough, if you get powerful enough as a creator, if you have enough clout, then you like the New York Times is not going to slam you in the way they might have slammed you earlier in your career. You know, they there's there's a couple of mentions in this particular essay of like kind of anemic 
um, reviews of things that were unsuccessful in his writing that just like didn't get panned in the way that the writer of this essay like expected. Um, so you're controlling that there. Like you're kind of erasing, like the more power you get, the more you're able to erase that particular like bad behavior yeah. because you don't have to like use that behavior to control your image anymore because it's like it's self yeah. perpetuating. Which is what you're describing here, too. Like, the reason we are talking about him, the reason he's an interesting figure now, and the reason he's, apart from his work, obviously, but, like, we're talking about him in this lens because he did these things. Like, it is self-perpetuating, right? Like, he, by aggressively, you know, putting yourself in these cycles and, like, making yourself, you know, positioning yourself a certain way, eventually that sort of takes on a life of its own, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it, I mean, and it becomes impossible for you to break that apart from the work that that you're in um and i think it can be argued that the reason that we're spending 20 minutes talking about philip roth um (laughs) (laughs) today is because he was able to use his image as a tool against the literary establishment like he was able to use it to gain and maintain power over publishers, over reviewers, over, I'm sure, like, booksellers and Would you that. like to hear a quote where he's doing exactly that? I would. I would like to hear a quote. <laughs> that really kind of... Um, so here we go. Far from retreating from public view, Roth embarked on a decades-long campaign of public image control. He always hated critics, but reserved his vitriol for lengthy letters to the editor. One to the New York Review of Books in 1974 suggested that Times staff critic Christopher Lehman Hopp be sacked and his job be filled by an annual contest among undergraduates. Or fictionalized rebukes where he and his alter egos had the last word. He welcomed sycophants who conduct in friendly interviews that, that were then placed in supine organs. And then this is the spicy bit from the essayist here. Then, as now, the New York Times book review. That were all too happy to oblige the famous author with a new book out. So... I mean, we're seeing it, right? This is someone who was very happy to throw their weight around, you know? And, like, we see this stuff now. And in a minute, you know, this essay closes with what I think is a very, you know, a very sharp and interesting, um, like, spotlight on how being a successful, you know, literary titan, right? And that, and actually, let's stop there for a second. Like, so what did Philip Roth, like, you talk for a second about, like, Every author, and as agents, our job is to help authors define what success is. Mm-hmm. Like, let's say Roth is our client. How is he defining success? Like, we would ask him, okay, how would you define success, Philip? And it sounds, to me, the answer from him is, like, lasting prestige. Everybody loves him and he gets to do what he wants. And after he's dead, people talk about him as one of the great... Ma- like, he was someone interested in the legacy questions, right? Yeah. Like, he, that's what he wanted. And that's what he was hell-bent on producing for himself through careful image control and being somewhat of a literary bully, you know? And, like, I think, you know, there is a contrast now, and I, and I guess I have a question for you on it. Like, the, this essay sort of argues that being... Like, pushing toward that line of success runs counter to being what we might call a warm and decent presence in the book world. (laughs) At least, you know, and that actually, like, from that, I want to read what I think is sort of the remarkable closing bit of this essay. Um, So this is the final paragraph of it, and then I'm going to ask you a question of it. Um, So here it is. An exquisitely managed career, right down to this totemic and compulsively readable biography, which young writers are well advised to consult as a blueprint for enduring literary stardom. Its lessons include never marry, have no children, lawyer up early, keep tight control of your cover designs, listen to the critics while scorning them publicly, when it comes to publishers, follow the money, never give a minute to a hostile interviewer, avoid unflattering photographers, figure out what you're good at and keep doing it book after book with just enough variation to keep them guessing, sell out your friends, sell out your family, sell out your lovers, and sell out yourself, keep going until every younger writer can be called your imitator don't stop until all your enemies are dead yikes yikes right (laughs) which first of all i mean it's it's an incredible paragraph but like he's driving a wedge there right which is basically to say the way you get what philip roth has 
is by being a monster. Yeah. You know? And so, like, my question to you, Laura, is do you think, like, in your parts of the publishing industry, yeah. you know, I don't know, YA, genre fiction, any of these places, like, are you seeing that? Like, do you think that, do you think that, this is obviously a tongue-in-cheek paragraph that is meant to highlight that this man was not very good, even as he got things he wanted, but, like, do you think that these are quote unquote apt lessons for getting ahead in the literary world right now? Or Not do you think- anymore. Right. Exactly. So that's that's what I want to get at. So like, what do you like? What are your thoughts there? Uh, so I I think the first thing is like you know always coming back to like the capitalism. Yeah. Like, because that's, that's really the question. Like, it's not that, like, publishing and people in publishing are necessarily, like, more decent now. But the um, the structures around them kind of make it so that, like, nobody can be Philip Roth right now. Right. Or at least, like, it's very, very hard to become Philip Roth right now. So... Um, the people who are on that track are being routinely mocked behind their back right yes. now. I will say that. Yes. <laughs> um, so, so uh, you know, a few a few things. One, there are more books being published yes. than ever before, right? Um, and you have like, uh, very demonstratively over the last many many years, a shrinking midlist in mm-hmm. publishing. Mm-hmm. So. The thing is, is it's become truer and truer and truer, as we've talked about before on the show, that publishers decide who are going to be writing the big books. And it's not like a case of like, this is a breakout or whatever. Like, this this is a runaway success. Um, or at least very rarely that's the truth. Like, they decide early. They're picking um, winners. They're very picking early. winners. Yeah. And the thing about winners is because of social media, because of the ease of travel, because of how people are buying books and doing things, like, to be one of those winners, to be, like, one of those Kentucky Derby thoroughbreds, Mm -hmm. like, you gotta be easy, right? Like, you gotta have, you know, you gotta be able to have the publicist say you're gonna do X, Y, and Z, and you're gonna do it, and we're gonna run you ragged, and, like, the thing is, is if you get snippy and walk away from a particular interview, um at least early on, like, that might be the the deciding factor between are we going to make this author the big one or are we just going to, like, not? So this that raises a really fascinating point to me, which is basically it sounds like what you're saying is that part of finding this sort of success at this point involves really making sure the app, the apparatus around you has as easy a time as possible. Yeah. Right? And that I, I can feel already because it occurred to my mind but people listening to this thinking like does that mean you have to sanitize yourself does that mean you have to water like if you're someone with provocative opinions or with you know something like that like is what you're describing mean you sort of have to soften your edges and be a perfectly marketable friendly vanilla and to me, the answer is no. Obviously, there are plenty of interesting and prickly people publishing books right now, and good for them. But it's there is something, I think, to be said for the fact that there is a heightened sense of needing to like, be marketable yeah. in the way you're describing, right? Yeah. And I, I mean, like, I mean, I'm not in house, so it's hard to yeah. say like how much someone is going to balance how easy you are to the public versus how easy you are to work with in house. And that's that's actually a really key distinction. Yeah. Especially and, in like acquisition stuff. Right. So like at the beginning of somebody's career, you know, it might be we want somebody kind of easy in house. And then if you make money hand over fist, like people don't really like her publishers don't care that J.K. Rowling is, like, a flaming right. transphobe, right. right? Because she's making them too much money. And so it's right. just like, oh, well, her bad parts are coming out. It's okay. Um, you know, like, James Patterson is notoriously difficult to work with in-house because he, like, doesn't have an email. So, like, <laughs> <laughs> and he's, yeah. like, and he, but the, th- the yeah. problem is, is, like, so, you, the like, the assistant emails his assistant that's with him at his like at his house and then they print it out and then they bring it to him and then he writes it out longhand and then it's like it's this whole process but then he's also like crazy involved so everything is just like hard and it takes forever and whatever but guess what it doesn't matter they have whole imprints dedicated around like supporting james patterson being like finicky about computers right and it doesn't matter um 
And, but I think the, so like I'm hoping, <laughs> I'm very much hoping that like for the, for people who don't necessarily have the um, best behavior right off mm -hmm. are, are sort of going to have those like rough edges shaved off in terms of like how difficult it is for people in publishing to work with them. Yeah. Um, but I have to say like that is like people being bad literary citizens and being mean is honestly the least part of my concern yes. looking at yes. the the kind of like Philip Roth problem. So he was able to be an asshole because it provided him power yeah. in a situation where he might not otherwise have it, right? Yeah. Like, he used it as a tool. He used his brand as a tool and brought his regular life into his writing and vice versa. Like, he did that. He kind of erased those lines so that he could exert power over publishers. Okay? Mm -hmm. Like, that is key. That yeah. is, and like, honestly, like, we at Print Run, we at Headwater Literary Management are always going to be the first people to be like, yeah, good for you. Get paid, right? Pro author. Pro author. Yeah. Um, like, if that's what gets you, like, a leg up in this business, then, like, okay. If it means that you can negotiate and lawyer up early and, you Writers know, get... Writers get hosed so many different times yeah. in this field that for those who are able to kind of throw their weight around in return, what are you going to do? Right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Great. I'm not going to, like condemn him for that isn't that. where we're yeah exactly what i think is more worrying <laughs> is that now that erasure that kind of line between art and artist and that image control mm -hmm. has instead of continuing being a increasingly strong tool to exert power over the publishing system it is now a tool that publishers are using to um, keep authors in line. It's been flipped. It's been flipped. It's been totally flipped where this idea, like, and you see it in every number of ways. And, but like the idea now is that power is with publishers and they will find, they have, it's basically they have a brand new rationale to keep people out, to marginalize right. people further, to do all these kinds of things, right? Right. And so, you know, it started with, you know, we're not going to publish something by this author because they're black or something. Yeah. And, like, and, you know, And we can only white already kids, have a black book. Yeah, and, right, you know, and like, white yeah. kids don't read books by black, black authors. And then when it became extremely true, like, it, it they, they were proved wrong, right? Like, yeah. books... Yeah. By non-white authors sell like crazy, yeah. right? Because like good books are good books. Right. Um and there's a dearth of them on the market. And so then it became, well, we only want the quote unquote best ones. And so I and there was there's been a lot of talk about this on Twitter in the past week or so about own voices and right. about how this was a tag that was created as a tool for readers so that they could identify books that um, were featuring marginalized characters who shared the same marginalization as the author. So it kind of like just just a little just a little extra piece of information, right? That kind of like would help readers choose books, right? Right. Well, publishing got a hold of that. Yeah. Uh, and it changed from something that readers are using to something that publishing is very much is using as a Means. cudgel to yeah, exactly. decide whether or not to publish a particular book. So, it's become a means of excluding the very people that Tag is was designed to help. Exactly. So yeah. before went the the idea is, is that well like yeah, if you're if you're a marginalized author in some way, you still have to write books about cishet, you know, yeah. able-bodied right. white men, right? right? Because that's the only ones that are going to sell. When people were able to start writing books about people who had lives like them and who looked like them, yeah. uh, <laughs> publishing said, oh, no, now we only want that. So we only want books from you if you 
if, if this project is own voices. We only want you if you're writing 100% about your own experience, your own trauma, your own things. They're forcing, so that I think is a really fascinating point and a really good one that I want to underline here, which is like basically publishers have used this tag that was meant to sort of like broaden and like validate, you know, the experiences of writers writing about things, you know, that they know firsthand into saying, into publishers saying that's the only thing you are allowed to do. Mm -hmm. And you see that frustration a lot. You know, you have, you know, like, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, the way you just, you know, you often see it talked about is like black people being only allowed to write about like racism. Right. Yes. Like, and it's like, well, how about we just let them write the books they want to write instead? You know, I mean, it's, it's, I don't know. Like the point is like we we're in this situation where publishers are using this like, rationale that at one point was very pro-author and they're doing they're forcing the sort of conflation this essay this essay gets at right where they're saying actually now you need to be synonymous you need to be synonymous with the art because the way we're going to market this book is as like you're going to basically be an avatar for the story itself you're not going to be given the luxury of the separation between art and artist and that's how we're going to sell it. And if you can't do that, then we're not interested in your work, you know. And that's, I think that's really bad. And I think it's really harmful. And so, <laughs> and so, like, ooh, yeah, um, publishing did another bad thing. What a surprise. Um, but the, I think the real, like, I think there's real value, though, in looking back at a figure like Roth and going, okay, like, he didn't necessarily behave how I want to behave, but, like, how did he claim that power? Like, how was he able to conflate or separate him from the art? Mm. Like, you know, I think that that one paragraph you read about the lessons, right? Yeah. Like, these are the lessons, and it was meant to be very biting and very tongue-in-cheek, but, like, I think it's really important to look at those and actually, like, think critically and learn some lessons about that if you have your self as an author and as a person being used to push against what art you're allowed to create and not create and if it's if that line is being erased for you so it is interesting because you like you look at this end list right of like you know, quote unquote, you know, bits of advice for up for aspiring authors, and yeah. some of them are obviously like, oh, we should, ne we wouldn't ever want to incur like the bits about like never marry, have no children. Like these are not things we would want to use as rationale for being successful or not, right? But some of the other stuff in here, you know, keep tight control of your cover designs. You know, listen to critics. You know, follow the money. You know, there are bit there are kernels in here that are less super provocative and more just like yeah you know what else you should do that you know what else Roth <laughs> did is he was a fierce advocate for himself and he didn't take bullshit from the you know and like yeah. it's he quit writing when he wanted to quit writing that's another fascinating thing about him that's like a whole episode in, in and of itself but like yeah no I mean it's and that was part of the image control right yeah. it's like he didn't like he's done alright I'm done this is it. This is my work. This is what you're getting I'm not going to write the off speed novel for when you guys don't think I have it anymore, yeah. you know? And or like, when I'm it, dead, you're going to have a half-finished one and then, like, yeah, put it like, out anyway. No, I mean, it's... So, I don't know. It's just... It's interesting. I mean, I guess, as it relates to, like, contemporary stuff, like, I just want publishing to be... One, I really want that that switch to get flipped again, where these tags that were originally designed to empower people in you know, and help market people in publishing who weren't necessarily getting a fair shake beforehand. Like, that's what that's for, and it shouldn't be used to pigeonhole people into having to, like, one thing you see a lot is, like, people having to justify their, like, as they're talking about their book, you get people in the replies, especially on Twitter, they're like, well, did you experience this? Is this something, for, how do you know about this? Is your experience valid here? And it's like, on some level, I get those questions, but on the other, like, we're sort of asking, like, marginalized writers 
to constantly be justifying their own life experience yeah. as a means of writing the book they wrote. It's also just like a safety issue. And I, exactly. And a like, privacy right, issue. Right, exactly. Like, I mean, you, you see people, I mean, we saw a discussion the other day, like writers having to like come out of the closet publicly before they were necessarily wanting to all because, you know, they're trying to publish something. Like, these are real things that are, as you're saying, represent a safety issue and represent a, like, Absolutely in opposition to what the hashtag and the movement is ostensibly about, you know? Right. Yeah. So I think <laughs> I think it's like one of the key things, and certainly the way that I've been thinking about it before this week, is that the 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 goal and the intention behind that very public erasure of artist and work is it read to me like a very modern thing, right? Yeah. Like it read to me as something where it's like, oh, this is happening because we can give more context to readers. The, you know, the author is more available to readers. This is something that felt really new. And I think the only part of it that's actually new is the exploitation. <laughs> right. Um, and so I, I think like, you know, a lot of writers right now, a lot of marginalized writers are are being put in a very like difficult and unsafe and uncomfortable positions to have to navigate this. And you know, I think I think that it's we have more tools available to us. Like writers have more yeah. tools available to them because of the history of publishing that I think we perhaps were aware of before. Um yeah. And so, like, there was a point where this switch flipped. And yep. so that means there's a point that this switch can flip again. And I think I want to end this discussion by just kind of, like, reminding everyone here that, like, ultimately, like, no matter who is trying to wield the power over your particular image control, like, you are still the primary control of it. Yeah. And You are. And, yeah. like... That matters more. Like, the, you know, that is of the primary importance. And, like, this is something that, you know, at least in, in our work, we have tried to make clear, right? Where it's like, we're not going to turn your identity, your experiences, you know, whatever it is, into something that pigeonholes you as, as simply like marketing devices, you mm -hmm. know? Because I think that's really toxic and we do see it happen a lot. And so I don't know. I mean, just like if you're in the, especially if you're, like, in acquisitions listening to this, like, just, like, think about the way identity is being used for and against authors of marginalized, you know, backgrounds. Like, how, like, how is that affecting their chances? How is it affecting um, the way in which you're evaluating their work or your department is evaluating their work, you know? And I don't know. It's just, it feels like there's so much to say about it, but... Um, it's sort of an ongoing thing, you know? Yeah. So we'll leave it there. I want to close out our discussion today with a Tulloon It May Concern. Man, the first one in a while. The first Tulloon of 2020. Oh, there were so many good ones to choose from. We might just have to do like an entire bonus of just Tulloons. Yeah. This is a good one, though. Dear Loons, I will begin the process of querying soon, and I'm thinking ahead. Read, I'm being hopeful and considering what might happen on the call. Mm. Out of the many questions I'll have about their vision for my book and my vision for my career, there's one question I'm not sure I should even ask. Is it appropriate to ask an agent whether they have another full or part-time job? After the episode earlier this year about Laura's decision to become a full-time agent, I've been thinking about this. While I understand the industry makes it nearly impossible to be a full-time agent for a myriad of reasons, I also wonder if clients have a right to know this about their work partner. Thoughts? Best not wanting to be offensive in New England. Okay. Um, so this is a fascinating question. And it kind of, honestly, like, this is the sort of question that, like, lies at the heart of why this show exists, I feel like. <laughs> but, like, exploring this specific frustration was, like, why we sort of popped into being, I think. That's actually, yeah, and, that's like, completely accurate. Well, so the first thing I would say to this writer is we actually had a discussion uh, with Jess Sinsheimer uh, way back when. It's a very early episode. But... Uh, she had a lot of really good thoughts on this, too. I would recommend maybe going back and listening to that one, too, if you're really interested in this topic, because um, she 
you know, with someone who expressed a lot of frustration, you know, like we did about like having to kind of hide your your other job, like not carry the stigma of being someone who was only part time. Like there's a lot of really good thoughts in that show of ours, too. So I would I would go there. But otherwise. So, Laura, I'm conflicted here because on the one hand, I do think authors have a right to know, Mm -hmm. you know, what the deal is. I think transparency is literally the core of our job. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think, though, that if an agent were to tell you, "Yeah, I do this. I do this other thing to get paid," like that shouldn't be something that's held against them, you yeah. know? Like, because you're, you, what you're describing is, should I view it as like, should I try to sign with an agent who has it as a full time job? Yeah, and that's where it gets tricky because the answer for me is, I don't think someone who does this. Like someone who has, you know, the ability to do this from nine to five every single day, which, you know, we've sort of transitioned toward that. You know, we're not 100 percent of the way there, but we're pretty close at this point. And like but it's it's tough because I want I think it's fine to ask. But my question is, like, what is there? What are you trying to know? You know? Yeah, I think I'm coming around to that as well, because I think there are a few there are a few underlying questions yeah. that I think maybe just asking, like, do you have a part-time job or, like, what do you do else for money won't really get you the answer you're going for. Right. So um, right. a couple of things. Uh, I think y- you will probably, if you look on, like, querying advice kind of things, you'll see tons of discussion about, like, do you want somebody who's a really established agent or somebody who's a brand-new agent? Well, the thing is, is it takes, you know, on average about five years to, like, make enough money to do this full time. And so if you want a younger agent who maybe has a smaller client list, who's still being very, very actively mentored, who doesn't, you know, who's, like, doing all of their own work and has tons of energy, you're probably going to have an agent who does other stuff. I think the complicating part about this question is not like whether or not it's like appropriate to know, but I think it also will have to do with like when are you available for me? Because yeah. like see that yeah. That's a key too, where it's like, you know, does somebody have a very like flexible part time job versus like are there are there certain days or certain hours where you're just like not gonna be free? Um, but I think most importantly, it has to do with like What's on your plate, right? Because the thing is, is like it's actually not a big problem if somebody has like it's not a sign of anything bad if somebody has a day job or a part time job because agenting is scalable. So like I worry if somebody has like 20 authors and only agents for 20 hours a week, that's that's scary, right? Like if somebody, you know, signs tons and tons and tons of people right off the bat. If somebody does this part time and just has like ten authors, sure. And that's also so. I think it's important to frame that there. That's a question of bandwidth proportionally, yes. not a question of whether they have a part time job or not. It's a right. question of whether the time they devote to agenting is time that right. you feel you're going to get the attention you need, right? And that's and like, also like that's also a thing that you'll get if you go with a big agent who does this full time but has assistance. Like it's, yep. you know, it's still about bandwidth. It's yep. like how much attention am I going to get from you versus a, what what attention am I going to get from the assistance? I would also like depending on who you're talking to. And this is real I think what you're really trying to suss out is do you feel you're going to get the necessary attention you require? And that is honestly less a question of part-time, you know, versus full-time and more about like, is this person, does this person have, like, you know, do they have sales in the way that I like? Are they, do they have a vision for what I'm doing? Are they talking concretely about things they want to do? You know, things like that. I mean, and just anecdotally, the best agents I know are ones who, like, who do other things, you know what I mean? Like they, I mean, truly, like it's not, like, I just cannot stress enough that I understand what you're not wrong for wanting to know this. You're not wrong for like being concerned about this sort of thing. The essence of it is really good, but I might just ask you to reframe your thinking just a little bit from the binary of, are they doing this part time or not to in the time they do spend in their age and in career, is that time going to be something that yeah. makes me feel confident? And I'm going to bet that a lot of the time the answer will be yes, depending on who you're talking to, yeah. as opposed and even more so than a lot of full-time agents who 
like, I don't know, have there's a million things pulling at our times that aren't just other jobs. You know yeah. what I mean? Like there's big there's clients, there's things like you see a lot. Like I feel like one thing that happens to writers a lot of the time is they sign with a big splashy agent and they're not the top priority because that you know what I mean? Like the big splashy agent has, has big splashy clients. Right, exactly. So like yeah. and that is more time consuming than a part-time job yeah. working as whatever to make your rent. You know what I mean? I don't know. It's just, oh. it's a complicated question. And it's more about just like, what are you, how confident are you that the time they spend on your book is going to be good time? You yeah. Know? Um, so one, one thing just before we close this up, I would like to, uh, mention you meant, you mentioned paying your rent. Um, Eric and I just answered this question, <laughs> um, from the perspective of people who like don't have like family money that's paying our bills. Right, right. Um, and so, like, that's also something you see it a ton, particularly, like, in-house on editorial sides where you have um, people with family money able to, like, be in this business because this business doesn't pay, like, living wages. Um, it is and not so, a sign of competence to have a full-time It is not a sign of, yes, like, more, maybe more Absolutely. in publishing than anywhere else. And <laughs> that's so, a great point. That's a great so, point. So, like, we, so all of those yeah. answers that we just gave, like, yeah. we are giving them from, like, a, like, working middle class perspective. Um, you want the agent, you want the agent who's hustling to get it done more than you want the full-time agent who it's not totally clear how they're like spending you know what I mean like it's yeah 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 so that's just like another complication and it's like one thing that like you probably can't do is like hey do your parents pay your bills (laughs) um but like this is this is also one of those things where like how your agent will kind of like talk about like their own work and like you know, like, if your agent can have very frank conversations about, like, how much money you need to make every year yes. to, like, be able to write right. and stuff like that. Like, I mean, that that might be a big consideration for you. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, sorry it's complicated. Um, the, it's so, a the great essence question. of your question, yeah. I guess, like, the point is the essence of your question is a little bit different than what you like. You're worried about something very valid, which is having time and bandwidth for your stuff. But make your questions geared around that rather than. Do you have a part-time job or not, right? Yeah. And it is, you know, it's also worth mentioning that, like, on the call, a lot of the answers people will give is be like, yeah, I, like, totally have time and blah, 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 blah. And, like, but, like, the thing is, is that the call is you're both trying to sell yourself to each other. And so, like, that's when talking to clients, like, their current clients is really important. That is when, like, really digging deep and figuring out what your own, like, needs are. Right. Um, yeah, and, and I, you know, I hope, I hope that you'll get that call soon. All right, wonderful. Well, Eric, uh, my sugar high is wearing off a little bit. (laughs) Um, so we will, we will leave it here. Um, thank you so much for joining us at this episode of Print Run. Make sure to email us your suggestions for our little mini Patreon episodes and your queries in your first pages. We're at printrunpodcast at gmail.com, and we will see you for a regular episode next week. Bye.